Acts chapters 16 through 21 contain the bulk of the accounts of Paul's missionary journeys throughout the Roman Empire. Though they take up only a few short chapters in our scriptures, these journeys comprise several years and involve visits to several nations. More than this, in the journeys of Paul and the other apostles, the groundwork was laid that would pave the way for religious liberty and eventually end up changing the face of the entire world. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Gospel Doctrine, where each week we strive to present the material from the Come Follow Me lessons in the Curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, This week we're discussing Acts 16 through 19, also called The Lord Had Called Us For To Preach The Gospel. As always, should you care to email the program, send me a message at gt at gospeltoctrine.com, and also remember we much appreciate your five-star reviews on iTunes, Facebook, and SoundCloud. They help us to find new listeners, as do your shares on social media. So we're going to talk about why this lesson is so amazing, why all these events are so amazing. If you remember last week, we had uh, the accounts of a couple of Paul's visits to different cities, but this, this lesson is basically where all of Paul's missionary journeys are held, except for his final journey uh, to Rome. And so we're going to talk about Paul's missionary experience missionary work in general, uh, and also what Luke was trying to accomplish in writing his gospel in the book of Acts. And it's all going to be brought full circle. In, we, we could wait until the end, but really this is when Luke brings it all full circle. Like we can, we can very clearly see his purpose in writing, and we'll discuss whether he accomplished that purpose. So just as a bit of recap, last week we discussed Acts 10 through 15. And in Acts 15, you'll remember this was uh, kind of like the first general conference of the church. So Peter had had his vision uh, where he was he witnessed a vessel, a sealed vessel or a, or a sheet knit together in the four corners come down from heaven containing what he thought were unclean beasts. And he was instructed by the Spirit to rise, kill, and eat in his vision. And he refused because he'd said, I've never, never has anything that is common um, entered my mouth. And God said, that which has got, God has cleansed Call thou not common. So the controversy was, are we going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles? We know we need to go to the Gentiles. There are more and more Gentiles who are coming wanting to be taught. And this was never a problem, as long as those Gentiles were willing to first convert to Judaism and become full-fledged Jews. Now remember, Christianity was not seen as a separate religion. They were basically Jews who believed Jesus was the Messiah, and they wanted all Jews to believe this. And if you weren't, and if you weren't prepared to believe this, then become a Jew and then believe this. Right? They never thought of themselves as separating from Judaism. So this is uh, look seen in retrospect. This is sort of a pretty big fork in the road. At the time, they didn't think, "Oh, we want to become, we want to separate ourselves from Judaism." Although Paul, nobody was more Jewish than Paul. But in years to come, Paul would explain why a lot of the things that he had, why a lot of the observances that he had thought were so essential most of his life had been superseded by the need to follow Jesus Christ. And this became clear to Paul as he journeyed and as he studied and as he wrote. 
And nowhere do we see um, better evidence of that in his, than in his epistle to the Hebrews, because that's where he sort of addresses his Jewish past and his Jewish traditions that, in which he grew up. Um, so we'll, the interesting thing about these chapters is that chronologically they match up with, with all of the Pauline epistles that are going to follow. So the very last epistle may have been Paul's epistle to the Romans, but it's the one that follows the book of Acts directly. So remember, those epistles are not in chronological order. In fact, you can kind of guess where these epistles, when these epistles would have been written by where Paul is. If you, and these are the chapters where you can make those guesses. So Ephesus are the people to whom Paul wrote the epistle to the Ephesians. Thessalonica, right, is the city where he wrote the epistle to the Thessalonians. So you can make that little matchup of the name of the city to the name of the epistle, and you can guess when, in what order these epistles were written. So at the end, if you'll remember, at the end of last week's lesson, they had this general conference where it was decided that Gentiles who wanted to join their movement, and this movement does not yet have a name, they called themselves Christians, as we discussed. In Antioch, they began to call themselves Christians, but that doesn't mean that their movement had a name. They, them, they had a name for themselves as believers, but not for the path that they followed. And interestingly enough, that path came to be called simply the path. And another way of translating that, and the way that we read it in our scriptures, is the way. So they, they began to call Christianity the way, just meaning that while you're following Judaism, while you're worshiping Yahweh, you're going to follow the way that his Messiah and his son have outlined for you to follow. And uh, so they, and I don't mean the son of Yahweh, but they, they would not have known to make the distinction that uh, Jesus Christ was the son of God and also Yahweh himself. Or at least we don't find evidence of that in our modern scriptures. In any case, Jesus Christ, the son of God, and also uh, they were followers of the God of Israel. So in Acts 15, I want to read one verse for you that kind of brings this idea home, and then we'll go on to today's chapters. And that is, so in verse, uh, well, not one verse, but one little passage. So in Acts 15, verses 13 through 21, we, we kind of see where the decision is actually made to move on with, or to move forward with this new revelation. And the the person who voices this is James, and it says, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name, and to this agree the words of the prophets. Now, this is important. He, when he says the prophets, he's speaking specifically in this instance about Amos, and the, the scripture he's about to quote comes from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. The way that the scripture originally read was so that uh, he's talking about the, the Israelites returning one day to their lands, and he's talking about the, the renewing that will come over the land of Israel. And then in verse 12, uh, it reads, Israel will possess what is left of Edom and all the nations I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken, and he will do these things. That's the New Living Translation. So... Amos is describing Edom, which is a country to the south and east of Israel, and it's across the River Jordan. 
And when the Israelites entered into the land of Canaan for the first time, they would have passed through Edom. So Edom, the Edomites were friends, at times allies, and at times bitter enemies of the Israelites. Now, something interesting about Hebrew is that Edom is sometimes spelled uh, in the same way as the word for man or mankind, which is Adam. And there are times when Edom has an extra letter. So this this is one of those instances where there is some confusion. So in the in the book of Amos, it reads universally, in every translation you'll find, it reads that they the Israelites in the last days will possess the remnant of Edom. Now, let's compare that to Acts chapter 15, verse 17, so that the remnant of men may seek the Lord. So these, it's, it's obvious, it is absolutely indisputable that these two passages are quoting from the same original source. We have somewhere between James and his whatever version of the Old Testament that he had and the version of the Old Testament that we have today, we have some sort of difference in translation. So the way James is rendering this is that instead of Edom, when he says the remnant of men, he's he is interpreting that as Adam. So Edom became a symbol for all of mankind. And the interesting thing is that in, in the Amos instance, it is the Israelites who are going to conquer and possess the land of Edom when the great day of the Lord comes, when their new Jerusalem is established. And in the book of Acts, the way James quotes uh, Amos, he's saying the, that all nations will seek the Lord, all mankind will seek the Lord. So Edom has been substituted for all of mankind, or Adam, and that now Adam is going to seek the Lord. So the point that I'm trying to make with all of this, and I'm and I, the reason I want to do it is, number one, just to show you an interesting eccentricity of the original Hebrew and that underlies even the New Testament written in Greek, but also to show that the Old Testament viewpoint is that the Israelites are going to conquer, and the New Testament viewpoint is that the way that this is going to happen is that the remnant of men, all of mankind, in other words, the, resi- the residue of Adam, are all going to accept the Lord. They're going to seek the Lord. So this shows you why instead of waiting for the... This, this actually is a perfect highlight of the difference between a militaristic Messiah and a Messiah like Jesus who came and then inspired his followers to do missionary work. Because instead of going out and conquering, what Jesus calls is calling upon and what James is saying that Jesus is calling upon all of the, his disciples to do is to go out and convert the world so that all of the residue of mankind will seek the Lord. And this is the convincing scripture. The reason I'm making such a big deal out of it is once James cites this scripture, the discussion is ended and everyone accepts his interpretation of what they should do going forward. And this has a a variety of implications. Now, remember we said that this vision wasn't originally about food. However, the result of adopting the vision as doctrine was that the food laws were no longer so carefully and so rigorously applied. And so the Jews were seeing Christians come into their congregations who, who didn't have to obey all the food laws of Moses. And then it would only have taken one generation, maybe two, for that observance among those of Jewish descent also to die out because they would have thought, well, if, if these other 
Christians of Greek descent can follow Christ without having to separate their milk from their meat, for example, then so can I. And that they were right about that. And so it was going to have, it was going to have four different very, very profound consequences on Jewish culture. One was their food observance, one was their, their festival observance, one was the act of circumcision itself, and one was how carefully they observed the rituals, the blood sacrifice of the temple in Jerusalem, and how centered they were on the temple in Jerusalem. All four of those aspects would be profoundly impacted by not only Peter's vision, but James' interpretation of that vision and the policies that resulted. So what we're, what we're seeing now in Acts 16 through 21 is the result, is, is, this, is this policy change carried out to its logical conclusion, which is that all the world now, in order for the great day of the Lord to arrive, all the world must accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Rather than Israel conquering them, the resi- res- rather than Israel conquering the remnant of Edom, the, the residue of men will seek the Lord, right? We have those two translations of that same verse of Scripture that are in stark contrast to each other. One is militaristic and flows out from Jerusalem to the world, and the other is spiritual and flows from the world to Jerusalem. And that is the one that ends up governing. That is the interpretation that everyone accepts and carries forward. And Paul is the example that we have most prolifically represented in the scriptures. Now, we have evidence that the other apostles went and did missionary journeys, perhaps every bit as profound as Paul's, but we don't have their record in our scriptures. So uh, the, the records of the, we know that certain apostles traveled east to perhaps Persia uh, and, and other places in the east, and the, the reason we know this is because there were, for example, Armenians where are they oldest? It's the oldest Christian nation from the first century. In, in other words, from the time of the original apostles, it was a Christian nation. But Paul didn't travel there. In fact, at one point it says, uh, from travel in Asia, he was forbidden by the Spirit. And Asia didn't mean what we know as Asia, the entire huge continent, but just points a little bit east of where they were. So Paul was not the missionary to make those journeys. And we can, we're forced to extrapolate what little we know about those journeys, we're forced to extrapolate from what we can read about Paul's journeys, and we can guess that they might have been similar. But that's as far as we can go without uh, having some sort of additional record come to light. So what we have in our scriptures is the record of Paul the Apostle traveling all over the Roman world, which was a world influenced by Greek culture and speaking Greek. And so it feels though as though Paul is traveling to all the nations, but really he's traveling within a single monolithic cultural tradition, which is the Roman Empire. It's been unified militarily, it's been unified politically, and to a large extent it's been unified culturally. And so there are differences, obviously. There are minor differences in makeup and in beliefs in every city that he visits, but there, but he can communicate with everyone. Uh, he knows how to speak to them without having to, let's say, learn about what's important to them. You can imagine if Paul had traveled east as far as India, it would have been quite different, right? He would have not known 
these people were already Buddhists and he would have not known what even to talk to them about. What did they care about, right? But in the Hellenistic world, in other words, the Greek-influenced world, Paul was very well-versed in that culture and knew exactly what to say everywhere he went. And it was almost like the equivalent of an American missionary leaving California and traveling across the country. That's kind of how we can understand this. One of the resources that will be very helpful for you as you read these chapters is, uh, and this is part of your Gospel Library app, it's also in your scriptures, is the map of the of the Near East in New Testament times, and it shows Paul's, there's one overlay, uh, it's a little di- different digitally than it is in your physical scriptures, but there's one overlay in the app that shows Paul's missionary journeys, or where it can break it down by journey. There's one that shows the entire uh, Roman Empire, or a or a subsection of it with the cities listed so you can see the places that Paul went. Fascinating to do that and helpful to do that so that you can understand where each of these uh, epistles later on, if not least so that you can understand that, but also so that you can understand the time, uh, the distant, the travel time involved each time he had to leave a city and understand he was on foot for most of this time. So that's why it's taken him months. He'll go to a city and stay for months, and then he'll travel for another city and stay for two years. So this, these chapters comprise several, several years of time. So that's, that's sort of the inciting incident to this part of our narrative, is there's a new interpretation put on when the great and last day of the Lord is going to come, according to the final chapter of Amos, and that is when the Gentiles are converted. So Paul, our, our story begins in Philippi. Obviously, the Philippians. This is later on, Paul is going to write uh, an epistle. Uh, one more interesting note before we just dive right into the story, and that is the epistles, almost all, perhaps all, preceded the book of Acts. Think about it, and it makes sense. Paul traveled to these places, and then a short time later, he wrote letters back saying, hey, I've heard that you're, you're deviating from the teachings that I gave you about Jesus Christ in this particular and in this particular, and I'd like you to repent. Or he's saying you need, you need strengthening or you need doctrinal shoring up uh, about this particular point, and so I'm going to write about that. Here's a letter to you. And Luke, the, those would have been scriptures to people like Luke. Luke would have, Luke, as we know or as we have guessed, when you, you read in the book of Acts, you see the word, we went here, we went there. This is Luke accompanying Paul on these journeys. So Luke would have had access to these epistles if he didn't deliver them himself. And it was only years later that Luke wrote both his gospel and the book of Acts as a two-part series. And so the impact of Acts was not felt in the, in the same, by the same people who read those epistles. Right? The, impacts, the impact of Acts was felt after the time that we have any record of. In other words, it's not recorded anywhere. It, it's only recorded in other sources. It's not recorded in any scriptural sources. What the impact of the book of Acts was, and we'll talk about what that was. It, the reason I'm saying that is it's hard for us to, or it's, it's usual for us to dismiss how powerful that impact tr- truly was because no other scriptures record it, and you have to study secular history to get a real feel for how earth-shaking this book was and others like it. Paul begins in Philippi. Now, the 
the interesting thing here is that he makes one convert, a woman named Lydia, and she converts with her household. And then um, I want to draw a contrast between the conversion of Lydia and the conversion of Paul. You remember Paul, he was zealous toward God as he described himself. God was the most important thing in his life, and he was willing to the point of violence to, to enforce what he saw as God's will, just as, just as he'd been inspired to do by zealots in the Old Testament. In contrast, Lydia heard Paul speak, and it describes her heart being opened. The Lord opened her heart, and that's all it took. She didn't have to be struck by a light on the road to Damascus. And um, she wasn't a zealot that was conked, conked over the noggin and forced into service. And, I, and I, I say that jokingly because, of course, we know that God forces no one to heaven. Uh, he, did, he did give Paul a very, very strong rebuke, which is also appropriate. And Lydia, he gave the Holy Ghost to... She'd obviously been prepared to hear the word of the Lord. Paul encounters this over and over again. People who have been prepared, they're ready to hear his message. They, they're waiting to, to learn about Jesus Christ. People who have never heard of Jehovah, period, and don't care about him at all. And people who've been worshiping the God of the Old Testament their whole lives, in almost equal measure, are attracted to his message. So Paul's missionary efforts in Philippi are supported from that point by Lydia and her household and she even lodges them. Now, there's an interesting story that follows in Philippi, where, um, and I want to talk a little bit about why, if you, if you just read this on the surface, you might not understand why it occurred. But um, the, as they're traveling back and forth, it says at one point they're going on, on, the, on their way to a place of prayer, and then there's a damsel who's possessed with the spirit of divination, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. And she follows Paul and says, these men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And then eventually, so she does this for many days, Paul being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. So first of all, this this girl is providing a, a living to her masters, to her owners. She's a slave, obviously. And uh, she's providing a living to them by, by people coming and wanting to hear her pronouncements, her spiritual pronouncements. But she's saying the truth about Paul. She's saying these are servants of the Most High God, and they're showing us the way of salvation. So it might not be clear. Why would Paul be upset by this? It says Paul being grieved or being annoyed. Uh, he turned to her, and it, why would he cast out the spirit? Did, or why would he even think there was a spirit? So let's get a little bit into this. First of all, the spirit of divination in the Greek comes from the word pithos or pythos, which we know means a serpent, right? It's, it's the root of the word python. The Pythian pri- priestesses, you may have heard of the oric- oracle of Delphi, and it's where the these women would, priestesses of, uh, of their god would, suspend themselves over a crack in the earth and the fumes from this deep abyss would rise up and they would uh, become drugged by this gas and then they would make prophetic pronouncements for whoever wanted to come and pay uh, their devotions to the to the god so the oracle at delphi was very very well known and it's uh 
it features prominently in ancient Greek and Roman mythology, for example. And so that the sect that they were part of is the same word. She had the spirit of divination. She had the spirit of pithos. She was um, this worshiper or of this pagan serpent god. And so that tells you a little bit more right there, just knowing that original Greek. And then secondly, uh, the, the word for ventriloquist was, was used for those who were possessed by this same spirit. So it wasn't just that she was following them and saying, I, I want everyone to know that these men are true messengers of God, right? What she was saying was, perhaps in a voice that didn't sound like her own, a ventriloquist is a puppet master, right? She, she f- seemed to everyone who watched her like somebody who was manip- manipulated by an outside force. Now, there's really no other way to interpret what happens than that was actually what was going on. Because when Paul says, uh, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, this wasn't him healing a mental illness, right? He commanded a spirit in the name of Christ to come out, and that pronouncement would have one result, which is that spirit cannot resist it and came out. And a real change came upon her then. And she was no longer able to make her masters their living by soothsaying because whatever, whatever demonic knowledge was being transmitted was now gone. So this is a real story of a real exorcism uh, of an evil spirit that was in this, this poor girl. And Satan had his purposes for inspiring this demon to do this. We can assume that by telling the truth about Paul, he wanted to gain the trust of those following in his messenger so that, there, that thereafter he could tell a lie through that same medium and have it be believed. That's my personal take on what has happened here. And Paul is seeing that this poor girl is being tormented and also he's distressed by the unnatural nature of what's going on. And eventually, out of mercy and out of love and out of power in the priesthood, casts this demon at this this evil spirit out of this young girl. And then this causes all kinds of problems for Paul because they were making, this was a very lucrative trade. This trade in oracles was was lucrative for, for at least the masters, but perhaps more because they were able to raise a mob based on this action. And the that says in verse 19 of Acts chapter 16, when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace under the rulers and brought them to their magistrates saying, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city. Now this is the first of many riots. We'll have an account of several riots that Paul causes where almost wherever he goes, not everywhere. But wherever he goes where there's significant interest in his message, a riot is almost sure to follow. And the uh, and Paul is Paul and Silas are beaten and they're put into prison, and so I'm just drawing attention to the way that Paul has been treated, and I'm going to make a little more sense of it later. But the first thing is there's a claim made against a Jew to a Roman authority that here is a man who, by power of God, has been preaching and casting out devils, and he has cost those who are complaining. He has cost them their livelihood. And so a mob is raised against them, and they're imprisoned and beaten. Okay? If you're starting to guess where I'm going with this, then you're very smart. But uh, we'll get, we'll, we'll, we'll tie it more together in, in just a few more riots, right? We'll talk about a couple more riots. So 
an interesting thing happens. As Paul is in prison, it says at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. Now we're in Acts 16, verse 25. And the prisoners heard them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately, this is important, the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. So the prison guard wakes up. He's, he sees the doors open. He's so worried that everyone has escaped. He knows that will mean his life, that he's about to just commit suicide out of despair. But Paul stops him and says, look, we're all here. It's okay. So now here's something very profound happens. He, he comes in. He comes. It says he comes trembling. He calls for a light. We're in verse 29. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs. Now the word sirs here is, uh, is the plural of Kyrios. If you remember in the Old Testament, the word for Lord is almost always Jehovah or Yahweh. In the, in the New Testament, the word for Lord used similarly to describe God and to describe other lords, and, but very, very exalted lords, is Kyrios. And so he uses this word Kyrios to describe them. And, and then he asks them a very interesting question. He says, what must I do to be saved? Now we're going to examine this a little bit because we don't know. I, I think it's very worthwhile to ask the question, why was this jailer asking them this question? And what did he mean? Uh, so let's talk about it a little bit because the earthquake was over. I mean, the first, the surface thing is, okay, he wanted to be saved from the earthquake. The earthquake was over, and so he wasn't, he was no longer afraid. He was, he was still standing in the jail. He could have run away. He was no longer afraid of being crushed by the earthquake. But he witnessed in the earthquake something he knew was miraculous because not only did it open all the doors, but it opened everyone's bands. In fact, it probably wasn't an earthquake at all. It probably felt like an earthquake, and it was a miraculous manipulation of the physical world by the power of God, where God just, the, the result was simply opening the doors and opening the bonds, releasing the prisoners, right? Something that God describes in the scriptures as his role. So God has done this. The man sees the danger from that is past. That wasn't why he asked the question. Second thing you might guess is, uh, how could, what can I do to be saved from the fact that all my prisoners have escaped, that I'm going to be killed by the authorities over me? But Paul has already set his mind at ease about that question. We're all here. You don't have anything to fear. So why would he, why would he say this? Uh, one guess one, one guess that follows from what we've just read is that he knew why Paul and Silas were there. He'd heard about this Pythoness, this, this priestess, this follower of the same oracles that, that prophesy at Delphi. And he'd heard about Paul's ejection of this demonic spirit. And he knew the miraculous nature of the earthquake and he also knew that the prisoners had been saved, harm, unharmed from the earthquake. And he'd apparently also been, just as Lydia had, prepared by God to believe in Paul's message. Now, being saved is a, a very religious concept. If this man, and it's not a concept, it's not a pagan concept, I guess is a better way of saying it. If he were a Roman, which he was, and he was... Uh, 
exclusively follower of the pagan traditions of his culture, then he would not have cared about being saved. But he cared. At that moment, he recognized the power of somebody who had already acted in God's name, who had just shown a miraculous escape, and that God was with him. And this man saw his chance to, to get an answer to an eternal question. And he showed his humility. I mean, it's just such a touching story that he showed his humility to somebody who's staying in his jail, that he will say, what can I do, not just today, what, what can I do with my earthly life, but what can I do with my eternal life? How can I change the direction I'm heading in so that I can be saved in an eternal way, in a spiritual way? This is definitely what he's asking. He's not asking for any earthly sort of salvation. And this, it shows his profound humility and preparation. So Paul and Silas, they remove from the prison to this man's home. They teach his family all night long, and they baptize him, all of them, before morning. And then uh, the, the prisoners are sent for in the morning, and the, the, they, they want to release them. And Paul says, oh, no. You beat us publicly. You humiliated us publicly. And now you want to send us away privately? I don't think so. We're Romans. And then everyone, this, this happens more than once to Paul. When he reveals that he's a Roman, everyone really regrets their poor treatment of him because you're not allowed. A Roman uh, was almost on the status of a noble. It, the vast majority of people are either bonded servants, indentured servants, slaves. Well over half of the people, the population of this culture, are in that status, and a Roman is a free person, and perhaps even a rich or powerful or influential person, and therefore it it comes with some consequence to beat a Roman, especially without a, a formal trial. In fact, uh, next week we'll talk about how Paul makes an insistence upon his rights to, to be treated as a Roman, and therefore uh, the events that followed that lead him eventually to Rome uh, they follow because of his insistence on being treated as a Roman. So the the authorities have to come and they have to sort of apologize to Paul and then they, they ask him, can you not stay here any longer? You know, we're embarrassed by this. Uh, that's one way of reading it. The other way is that it's sort of a veiled threat. And um, it, it says they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. So they went into the house of Lydia, and they said their farewells, and they left. Next, they go to Thessalonica. And Paul's pattern, this is where we begin to be familiar with Paul's pattern. He goes into a city, and he first preaches, as Jesus did, he first preaches to the Jews. So he spends however many weeks he needs to, showing up on the Sabbath day. And they think, oh, great, this is a, a Jewish preacher who's come to visit. Why don't we have him stand up and talk? And then Paul would surprise them by talking about this this Messiah figure that uh, was fulfilling prophecies from their scriptures and would really stir things up and quite often gain a, a large number of, of converts in the synagogue. And then when, uh, when they began to reject him, then he would turn his... It, this is very similar to Alma the Younger when he went to the Zoramites and he starts preaching first in this place of worship, and then he turns around and leaves the church and and faces the multitude outside who are hungry for religion and then makes a bunch of converts there. Paul would leave the synagogue and go talk to the Greeks and usually make even more converts among those 
who had not believed. One of the things that it says here in his visit to Thessalonica is that he also made a number of com- uh, converts, many chief women. And the, the status of women in Math- Macedonia, as contrasted to the surrounding nations, was that, um, first of all, chief women means women of influence and women perhaps connected with families of rank. And a woman in Macedonia gave her name to her family rather than her husband's name. Isn't that interesting? And so she would. The, this was a maternal culture or a matriarchal culture, and women have greater status. And Paul found himself uh, very successful in making converts among these chief women who could then influence the city as a whole. But once again, so here we are in Acts 17 now, uh, the Jews which believed not, so the, the Jews that were left over, and this is a pattern that's repeated, they, uh, the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, who was apparently their host, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city crying, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. So the world upside down, you may remember, this is the same phrase used in the book of Jonah. When Jonah goes into Nineveh and he says, in just a few days, in a short amount of time, God will turn the city of Nineveh upside down. And then this this phrase has two meanings because Jonah thinks what he's saying is the city will be destroyed but then they end up repenting in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, this turning the world upside down can have a bad meaning, catastrophic meaning, and a good meaning, which is everyone has changed their hearts. So it's interesting that they use the same phrase. You know, you've heard about these guys traveling all over, all over the Roman Empire, and they're turning the world upside down. And they think that what they're saying is they're bringing chaos in their wake, and one, another way of interpreting this is they're helping everyone to change their hearts. I think I thought that was an interesting turn of phrase. And uh, it's, it's a Hebraism that has survived its translation into Greek and then English, turning the world upside down. First of all, we don't know how long Paul stays in Thessalonica. And it was presumably, possibly, a long time because he ends up writing two epistles to those people there. But secondly, I want to point out the tactics that they used. Again, they, they raise a mob and they seek out certain lewd fellows, presumably people who are willing to A, employ violence, and B, lie about what uh, Paul is doing. Now, one of the things that they say about Paul and Silas is in Acts chapter 17, verse 7, uh, These all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. So understand now, here are Jews who are upset that this messianic figure, the movement that supports this messianic figure, are taking away their believers and their, and their power. And so therefore, in their minds, they're upset about the blasphemy that's involved in calling this, this Jesus that they follow, calling him the Son of God. But instead of complaining about that to the Roman authorities, they take they go to the roman authorities and say they're claiming that jesus is the king is the king and that's that's contrary to the will of caesar and here's where i'm going to sort of bring this together because it's now obvious where i'm going 
Paul or Luke is making it very, very clear that Paul and Jesus are being treated the same way by the world. So if you remember, in Philippi, uh, Paul was accused of, of depriving these, these owners of this, this poor girl, right, this, this oracle, depriving them of their living. Now remember, Jesus went into the temple and cast out the money changers, and, and he upset the powers that be for the very same reason. They raised a mob against him. He was imprisoned and beaten, just as Paul and Silas were. And here in Thessalonica, the same thing. They, they found people who were willing to lie, perjure themselves, and bear false witness against them and take them to the Roman authorities and claim that they were making, uh, they had pretensions that Jesus was royalty. So the, the, the exact same, both uh, physical and legal means were used against Paul as they were against Jesus. This is a continuation of the story of Jesus. And remember, Luke wrote, the, obviously you won't forget, but Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and, he, and now we see he, he's just continuing the theme in the book of Acts. It's, it's obvious now that it's not just a one-book arc. There is a longer purpose behind this. Okay, we're going to discuss both the means and the results of Luke's, of Luke's plan after we get a couple more examples. So the Paul and Silas are chased out of Thessalonica. They end up in Berea. And he has as many converts there as in, as in Thessalonica. That They have a ton of uh, success. And then eventually the people back in Thessalonica, in verse 13 it says, that when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached to Paul at Berea, they came thither also. And stirred up the people. So um, it, at this point, Paul got out of there rather quickly. Next, we see uh, the episode of Paul in Athens. And I'm going to talk about this separately because it doesn't fit the normal. There are a few reasons why this city doesn't fit the normal pattern. Probably because, most, most glaringly, because the people there just aren't truly interested in his message. They're not as religious. They don't care as much about God. And so he has a, an experience of a different sort there. We'll examine it separately. Next, he ends up, Paul ends up in Corinth, a Greek city. And he finds a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. And he lives with them and works with them. We, we discover that Paul's vocation is a tent maker. Now, Paul was trained under Gamaliel, who was uh, a rabbi, who was a, a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the people that was present at the trial of Peter and John. So Paul was almost definitely trained as a rabbi as well. But it was a prominent Jewish belief that rabbis should have some way of honorably earning their keep. And so they would learn uh, a trade, almost always. And Paul's, we find out now, was as a tent maker. Now, it's interesting, you can cross-reference this with Mosiah chapter 2, verse 14, and other places. So in that scripture, King Benjamin tells about how he did not lay upon the people taxes that were grievous to be borne because he, lay, he labored with his own hands for his sustenance. And Paul makes a similar claim. Uh, he does it in, in 2 Corinthians eleven nine. He also does it in Acts chapter 20, as we'll get to verse 34. He does that. He he works for his own 
keep in Corinth, in Ephesus, as well as Thessalonica that he's already left. So he he makes mention that he's done this all over the place. And we can presume wherever he's able, he takes up work and makes tents while he's preaching. He he can't be preaching 24 hours a day, so he'll go to a city, find work as a tent maker, and then also be a widely known preacher. His His main job, I'm sure he considered to be a missionary, and yet he also had this honorable trade that he would perform. It was considered no shame among the Jews to have a trade and to ply that trade. So in verse 4, we're now in chapter 18. In verse 4, we see that uh, Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And then some of them opposed themselves. So Paul went and he, uh, he shakes his raiment. Okay, we've, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the symbolism of clothing. I think if we have time at the end of this lesson, there was a lesson, I tried to remember what lesson it was from the Old Testament, when I showed all the many ways that clothes are used as a symbol in the Old Testament. So this is a very Jewish thing to do, is for Paul to shake his raiment and then say, uh, it was almost uh, symbolic in the way that God, that Jesus said, uh, shake the dust off of your feet. It's, It's a similar effect as well but that your blood, their blood might not be found on your clothes at the last day, right? That their blood might not come upon you. He's saying, I'm shaking my clothes free of your blood. I have done all that I can to show you the truth. But the fact that he uses clothes as a symbol of this, um, this was done in the Book of Mormon also. And that's one of the reasons I bring it up. When Moroni appears with the title of liberty, then people bring their clothes forward and say, uh, let, our, let us be let us wither and die the way our clothes would wither and die if we if we ever are not true to our covenant that we're making this day to follow to fight for the cause of liberty and we see it in the the old testament in a, in a variety of places and we'll see it in this lesson a little bit later on once again in a in a similarly powerful way so paul shakes his clothing and then says your blood be upon your own heads i am clean from henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles, and departed thence, and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshiped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. That probably means that it shared a wall with the synagogue, so he's right next door. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So I don't know whether this means many of the Corinthian Jews hearing that Crispus was converted believed, or whether it means that many of the Corinthian Greeks hearing the message of Paul believed. But in either case, Paul has a ton of success in Corinth, and his two epistles to the Corinthians are among the most powerful works of Scripture. So this is where he found not only uh, success, but he found a deep understanding of the gospel to the point where he was able to really give them, really expound to them the nature of love and charity and unity that we'll read in the in the epistle to the Corinthians. Now, uh, Paul even gets a, a vision. We we find out later that Paul has seen numerous visions of God, or at least two. One on the road to Damascus, and then after he came to Jerusalem, immediately after that, he saw God in the temple. And here's a third account of a vision of God to Paul. And and basically, the vision is simply this. Don't be afraid of opening your mouth in the city here of Corinth because I've got a lot of people here prepared to hear the, the message. 
Paul was there another 18 months. And then the Jews, once again, get upset to, <laughs> with Paul. And uh, in this particular case, they take him to the judgment seat. We're now starting in verse 12 of Acts chapter 18. And the story goes that uh, they, they bring their complaint like he is, he's abrogating our religion. And this Roman ruler says, look, if he had committed a crime, like if this were a matter of something that the law cared about, then believe me, I'd get involved with you guys. But he's changing, it, what it sounds like is he's changing the name of your God, or he's changing the way he's telling people to worship. And the, the Greek judge basically says, look, you guys are responsible for this. And they're so upset with their new ruler of their synagogue that they beat him when they leave because they've lost an important court case. And Gallio, the, the, it says at the end of verse 17, Gallio, the Greek judge, he cared for none of these things. So Paul had basically been given a ticket. He, was, he got off scot-free, been given a ticket to do whatever he wanted. And the reason I bring that up is this was what the Jewish leaders were afraid of when they accused Christ. If they had said he was guilty of blasphemy to, to Pilate, then Pilate would have said, well, I don't care. If he's guilty of blasphemy under Jewish law, that, that's nothing to me. I'm not going to execute him. And that's why they changed their charge between the time that Jesus was found guilty in the Sanhedrin and when he arrived in front of Pilate. The charge had changed from blasphemy to sedition. And so here we have an example of exactly why they did that. And it's because they would have been laughed out of court. Okay, um, and this is, this is Luke. Luke is obviously aware of this. He wrote the account, right? And so none of... One of the reasons I mentioned that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke is because we can't assume that any of this is accidental. It's all deliberate. Luke is so familiar. By the time he writes the book of Acts, he's so familiar with the life of Jesus that all of these similarities would have occurred to him. And he's, he's subtle about it. In this particular case, he's, also, he's very subtle about it. But it's, it's also, to me, inescapable that he knew what he was doing that he's tying all, with each missionary story, he's tying the account of Paul closer and closer to the account of Jesus Christ, and specifically the trial and the condemnation of Jesus Christ. And why is he doing that? We'll get into that after we talk about uh, a couple more journeys. But uh, so at this point, Paul is deciding to return to Jerusalem. And he has a, what, because, and it says he has a vow. He shaved his head. This is in uh, verse 18. He shaved his head for he had a vow. Now, it's interesting that uh, I just want to talk about the vow. The, one of the vows, uh, if you were a Jew, one of the vows you might take upon yourself is the vow of being a Nazarite. And the examples of a Nazarite we have in the scriptures are Samson and Samuel and possibly, uh, and I believe, not possibly, but definitely John the Baptist. So their their covenant was that they would not cut their hair and that they would not drink and that they would go near no dead body. They, they were dedicated to the service of God for their whole life. But a Nazarite vow could be also a temporary thing. It could be for as short a duration as seven days. When the vow is over, and this is described in the Old Testament, you would shave your head and you would have the priest in the temple burn your hair at one of the altars. And there are other vows that could be made that would have a similar ending, right? You would shave your head at the end of these, the, 
at the completion of your vow, when you had completed your covenant before God, then you would shave your head as a, as a symbol to this. So Paul, there are a few reasons that Paul may have done this. Um, it may have been just that he made a Nazarite vow, that he wanted to get closer to the Spirit, and he wanted to dedicate himself to God. It may have been some other vow. He, he may have done this out of gratitude. But as we see later, it also may have had the purpose of showing the Jews at Jerusalem. Paul, Paul was sort of persona non grata in Jerusalem. He didn't show his face there for a very specific reason. It's because he was afraid of being killed if he went there. He was so hated by the Jews in Jerusalem because he, he betrayed them worse than any of the other Christians. He was high up in their councils, and then he became the enemy from their perspective. And so for him to show up there, he was putting his life at risk. So Paul describes the, uh, in verse 21, Paul says, he bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I'll return again unto you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. So then um, he, he goes to Jerusalem for that feast. There there aren't any further events that are recorded in that visit to Jerusalem. So maybe nobody recognized Paul. Uh, probably nobody that mattered recognized Paul, none of his enemies. However, um, the next time he goes to Jerusalem, it, there's quite a different result. But he tries the same tactic, which is he shaves his head when he goes to Jerusalem. And this would have been a symbol to everyone who sees him that he is dedicating himself to God and he's showing up in the temple for the specific purpose of completing a vow to Jehovah. And Paul is trying to show his Jewishness when he does this. So this may have had, in addition to whatever other purpose his vow had, this may have had the purpose of showing the Jews that he respected their customs. So then, uh, interestingly, the Acts chapter 18 ends by departing from the story of Paul completely and talking about Apollo, a man named Apollos, born in Alexandria, which is a northern city. It's a city on the uh, Mediterranean, but in Egypt. And he is an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures. But he also needed, as we learn, he needed some more instruction. He needed deepening. So he was a new convert, but very, very zealous. He was, fi- he was on fire to talk about the gospel, and so he began to travel the way Paul did. And Aquila and Priscilla, who had hosted Paul for 18 months, they took him in, and they taught him everything Paul had taught them. Uh, it says, he expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Now, here we see this phrase, the way. This is almost, you can almost just skip it. I shouldn't say almost. You can easily overlook this phrase, but it appears several times as we'll read. Um, and this was their name for what they were doing. So it's not, it, it should almost be capitalized. That's how important that phrase is. Expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. This is how they considered their religion to be uh, named. Was It was the way of God. It was the path to follow. Jesus described himself, if you remember, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So they thought it entirely appropriate that they would call their set of beliefs that, that, again, in their mind, were totally in line with Judaism and with the scriptures of the Old Testament, they would call their particular strain, their particular movement, they would call it the way, because Jesus said, I am the way. And, uh, and we learned that Apollos was a powerful missionary. 
So back in, in, that's five, I think five verses. And then in chapter 19, we're back to the story of Paul. So next Paul goes to Ephesus. An interesting note here. There are some people in verse five who had been, uh, who had been already baptized. And he, uh, Paul asked them, well, did you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost? And they said, well, we've never even heard of the Holy Ghost. So this is, uh, I'll, I'll make mention after I talk about what happened as to why it's a significant scripture. But Paul says, well, look, if you were baptized with the baptism of John, John the Baptist, he always talked about the fact that one would come later who would baptize with the Holy Ghost. So these were people who were baptized with some imitator of John the Baptist, but who neglected an important part of John the Baptist's message, which was that the gift of, Holy, of the Holy Ghost will follow. What Paul is able to infer from this exchange is that these people were baptized by someone not having authority. They weren't baptized by somebody who followed the, the crucifixion of Jesus because all of those people would have been able to give them the gift of the Holy Ghost at the time of their baptism. And they weren't baptized by somebody who had authority like John the Baptist, or they would have talked about the Holy Ghost at least. They would have heard about it. The reason I bring this up is many times on my mission, I would, I would preach the gospel to someone and they would say, and I would invite them to be baptized. And they would say, well, I've been baptized. And here is a response right out of the scriptures. For those who are humble enough to hear it, Paul goes to people who have already been baptized and he finds out they didn't receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And I can guess, he doesn't know for sure, right? He doesn't know the name of the person that baptized them, but he, he can make a pretty good guess that they were baptized without authority. And in any case, he knows that they didn't receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So in verse five, it says, when they heard this, he, he explains this to them in verse four. And then in verse five, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is a very, very clear teaching that it is not a sin to be baptized again if you weren't baptized by the proper authority. And secondly, that baptism is of two parts. It's you're baptized once in, uh, in water, and then you're baptized by the Spirit when you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Jesus made mention of this when he said, uh, the same way that man is born of water, of blood, and of the Spirit, then you must be also born of these things to enter in the kingdom of God. Now, there are a couple of different interpretations for that verse of Scripture. Uh, or let me put it this way. The a modern Christian reader understands that scripture one way, and the Jewish, the contemporary Jewish listeners of Jesus would have understood it a completely different way, because when Jesus says you're born of water, blood, and the Spirit, to them it would have evoked images from the sacrifices at the temple. Being born of water is the washing that occurs to make a person ritually pure, and of blood evokes the images of the sacrifices that happen outside of the temple, and the Spirit is the spirit that exists inside the Holy of Holies. That to them, it would have been entirely a statement about the temple itself. Inasmuch as all of these things, the temple is providing for your salvation, you must also be born of water, blood, and the spirit to enter the kingdom of God. He was telling them by being baptized and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, you're, you're traveling the same road that the temple takes you down. But to a modern Christian reader, we think, oh, you're born of water, blood, and the spirit, uh, okay, then you've got to be baptized, born of water, emerge from the water. So, and, and obviously both are correct. 
And so that's, Paul is reaffirming this by teaching these people they have to be baptized again because it's in doubt whether they were baptized with the proper authority. Again, in verse 9, we read, uh, when, uh, let's see, he goes into the synagogue. Now, Paul is in Ephesus, remember, and he spake, he spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. So he's making converts, but then diverse or, or several people were hardened, believe not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude. So Paul now, because they start speaking um, ill of his, his band, his followers, and his teachings, and the way that they sum all these things up is to say that way. So once again, the way is used as a word for Christianity, and that is Acts 19.9. So Paul stays in Ephesus for two years, so that, and it says that it, it sums up, oh, and, and the environs, and it sums up his ministry there by saying these words in verse 10, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. In other words, Paul had been in a place a long time, and therefore everyone knew the word of God. I just want to point that out. Paul, Paul being somewhere, this is a great this is a great attribute to aspire to. Paul being somewhere for a certain amount of time meant that everybody there had heard the word of God. What a wonderful thing to say about somebody that because you've been in a place a long time everybody knows about Jesus Christ. That that's all that needs to be said is that you lived there and and we can infer just from that information alone that everyone around you, everyone within two days' journey or several days' journey has heard the word of, of God and, and learned about their Savior. A powerful, I mean, it goes on in the verse immediately afterward, it goes on to talk about the miracles that are wrought by Paul, but that is a testimony in and of itself more powerful that says that Paul would never stop talking about Jesus, no matter where he was. And uh, so then we do learn about his, his miracles. Articles of clothing, handkerchiefs that he carried would be taken from him and brought to the sick and they would be healed. And we hear this interesting uh, account of seven sons of, one, of one, uh, one man. And they try to do this. You know, They pretend that they have the authority of Paul and the evil spirit. They're trying to cast out an evil spirit. And the way the account goes is the evil spirit actually says, well, Jesus Christ I've heard of, and Paul I've heard of, but I don't know who you guys are. And then uh, this person who's possessed of the devil absolutely thrashes them and tears their clothes, and they, they run out and they're, and they're humiliated publicly. And then the word of God spreads all the faster because you cannot pretend to have this authority. People have learned this at various points. This is they're, Luke now is trying to cement the idea that there is such a thing as the authority of God, as the, uh, the power to act in his name, the priesthood, that has to be conferred by an authorized representative. This is so clear in the book of Acts that Luke really believes this and he knows it and he's teaching it and Paul is teaching it. So anyone who says anything different, I mean, it's such a common understanding among Christians today that by studying the word of God, that you can gain, uh, you know, you get a maybe a degree in theology. You can gain authority to act in the name of God. But it's anyone who believes that 
has not truly understood what Luke is going for here in this chapter and in other places where he's showing that it's not just enough to want to act in the name of God. You have to receive this authority from someone who has someone else who already has it. And ultimately, the source of that authority had to come from Jesus Christ himself. There's no other way to get it. That is clear from the scripture. It is not, it is not truly something that can be disputed. Now, it can be disputed that, oh, it's, it's lost, and so therefore we have to do the best we can, you know, but that's, that's all people making things up, right? And I, I'm, I, don't, I wouldn't disagree with anybody who's saying we have to do the best we can. But then when you have a recourse to Scripture and it, and it shows you the, the actual way the doctrine is, then it's time to humble yourself and, and learn about that doctrine and follow it. And that is the case with, with the authority of the priesthood, as we see. So, once again, there's a riot, and it begins because there's a man named Demetrius who is making these, what are called silver shrines. He's making little tiny idols out of silver for Diana, who's, who's the Greek name of Diana is Artemis. And she's a goddess, and they love her, and it's almost like you're disrespecting the you're disrespecting the culture, you're disrespecting the very supernatural being that protects our city, you're threatening all kinds of things when you, when you undermine the worship of Diana. And Paul is also, I mean, obviously this guy is upset because his living has been affected. He's not selling as many of these silver shrines, but also the, he's convincing so many people to stop believing in Diana that the worship, the temple of Diana, the worship of Diana might actually fall into disuse. And so he, he employs a number of people and he stirs them up. And then all the same people, all of his competitors, he stirs them up. And they actually occupy an entire huge theater. So there must have been thousands of people. Paul wants to go in and talk to them. And he's constrained by, those, by friends of his. And so they, you know, once again, like the people who grabbed Jason when they couldn't find Paul, once again, uh, there are some people, Gaius and Aristarchus, are brought into this theater, and they're, they're sh- shouting at them and chanting at them. Um, this is so similar to um, what happens in today's mobs. Somebody tries to make sense to a mob, and they, they shout so loud that the person can't be heard. They won't allow the person's words to be heard. Instead, they just keep saying, uh, great is Diana of the Ephesians. That's Acts chapter 19, 34. So they're shouting down somebody who has a message for them. But the town clerk finally appears and, and uh, cooler heads prevail. He says, look, uh, these, nobody's broken the law here. Diana is still well-worshipped. Let's all go home. If you were to mistreat these people because of what they're doing, which is totally legal, then there would be consequences to this, and eventually the mob disperses. But Paul leaves the city because of this. So we, we find that everywhere Paul goes, the success that he has garners him a ton of very powerful enemies, people who are very bitter towards him. And again, I want to point out in verse 23, there arose no small stir about that way. So they're talking about Christianity, once again. So Paul now has made up his mind that he's going to travel to Jerusalem and attend a feast there. Um, and 
So once again, uh, he's on his way to Jerusalem. People are trying to talk him out of it. This time, there are a number of people who have spiritual premonitions. Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Uh, And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But in a city called Troas, now this is one of the important verses in the New Testament, and I'll tell you why. So in in Acts chapter 7, just because this first sentence, upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them. So that first day of the week, this teaches us such an important, this is the only place in the scriptures where we hear about people who are now worshiping on Sunday. And uh, it's actually interesting to note that what they're talking about is Saturday to us. Um, So to the Jews, this would have been Sunday. It's Saturday night, right? It's the day after the Sabbath, as soon as the sun goes down. But to us, it's still Saturday night. So you might hear that these people are worshiping on Saturday or on Sunday. But the point is that the day of worship has changed from the Sabbath to the day following the Sabbath, because that's the day. The Jews, even though it's the night before Sunday morning, to them it was the same day. They would have believed that they were worshiping on the day in which Jesus Christ was uh, resurrected. And so it may be, I mean, there are a couple of different ways to look at this. It may be that they partook of the Lord's Supper, of the sacrament, whenever Paul showed up, whatever day of the week it was. And uh, there, there are members of the church today that partake of the sacrament all different days of the week. There are regular sacrament, regular, and I mean every, uh, every month at least, and every week in some cases, uh, sacrament services held different places in the world on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, as well as Sunday. And that is in the modern church that is happening to this very day. And this may have been the case uh, in with Paul as well. Or it may be that this was their regular day of worship. And this verse is showing us, and uh, this, is a, this is a response to those people, Seventh-day Adventists uh, most prominently, who say, why are you worshiping on Sunday when the, the scriptures say, keep the Sabbath day holy, keep the Saturday holy. And it's very clear from the scriptures that, that Saturday is the seventh day of the week, and that's when the Lord rests. And so that's the day the Lord commanded us to hallow it. And then it's also clear from the scriptures here that they were hallowing the, uh, the day after the, the seventh day of the week, the first day of the week. And therefore, the, the, these ancient Christians had come to terms with a truth that is still ringing, is still resonating today, which is that the resurrection was an even more powerful form of creation. It's where, and, I, and I spoke about this a few weeks ago. On the, on the resurrection lesson. I talked about uh, a conference address by Russell M. Nelson in, in October of 1993, and uh, where, where the resurrection was described as a creation. And I can, I can guess, without knowing it, but I can guess that that was what was driving their worshiping on this, on this uh, Sunday, or this Sunday evening, the evening pre- preceding Sunday, which they would have seen as the day following the Sabbath. So, um, Unfortunately, Paul speaks for several hours, and a, a poor young man sitting on the third floor balcony falls asleep and then tumbles off the balcony and dies. The fall kills him, and Paul raises him back to life. Paul, Paul, uh, miracles follow Paul the way that they followed Peter, the way they followed John, and the way that they followed Jesus. Peter, uh, Paul has this same authority, it's clear. And this is Luke once again showing that Paul not only can heal the sick, not only can he 
through indirect means cause miraculous things to happen. Remember, Jesus did uh, his, the hem of his garment, or he, he commanded that somebody who wasn't present was healed. And so Luke is showing that Paul is performing the exact same kind of miracles, and now he, he shows Paul performing the greatest miracle of all, bringing someone back from the dead. Incidentally, Paul also brought himself, quote-unquote, back from the dead. He was stoned in last week's lesson. He was stoned in one of the places that he visited and left for dead. So I don't know how you are mistaken about somebody whose head you just smashed with a rock being dead, right? So Paul may well have been actually killed and then returned to life, uh, or if not, he was very, very gravely injured and then sprang up. It, It wasn't described as a miracle, Right, but uh, I think Luke knew that people would read that and see that Paul, at least, uh, almost, you know, at least approximately, had been raised from the dead, and that is Luke's attempt once again to tie the story of Paul to the story of Jesus. And and what what Luke is trying to do is say um, the followers of Jesus equals the movement of Jesus equals the life of Jesus. He's trying to say that all of these all of these different people are getting the same treatment. So if you love Jesus, then you love the followers of Jesus. And if you love the followers of Jesus, then you love Jesus. So I'm going to talk now, I'm going to, I'm going to make it a little more clear about what Luke is trying to do. First of all, how is he doing what he's doing? So one of Paul's means is that he paints the mobs as a bad guy. They act irrationally, the, the followers of Christ are suffering the same persecutions as Christ, and they're caused by the same people, which are Jews who are upset that their status quo is being uh, altered. And they're appealing to the same authority, the Roman leaders, whoever's local. And the offense is also the same, which is there is no offense. The, this is the real point of Luke. He's showing that Jesus was innocent by showing that Paul was innocent. And he's showing that Paul was innocent by showing that Jesus was innocent. Their innocence reinforces, each, each's innocence reinforces the others. And it's such a powerful literary and rhetorical technique that I, I just I can't believe that it was accidental. So why is Luke doing this? Um, there's a legal technique. The, I think the, the best way for me to explain it, there's a legal technique that is used by smart lawyers in a criminal trial. And that's, that's kind of what Luke is doing, is he's putting the followers of Jesus and the way on trial. And in a, in a criminal trial, if you're a defense lawyer, what you're going to say in your opening statement is, uh, knowing the case that's against your client, you're going to say, my client has this, this, and this evidence against him, but... Uh, this evidence is not true for this reason. This evidence is not true for this reason. You're gonna you're gonna not try to hide the fact that this evidence is out there. You're gonna expose these stories that are going around about your client, and you're gonna give a response to them. And that way, when the when the jury hears later on, oh yeah, I know I know that this guy was seen coming out of the store at 12:31 p.m. But you know, I already also know that he was, it's because he needed some medicine for his mom or whatever, right? So the jury has been inoculated against this evidence because it's heard an earlier, before it's heard the powerful case against the, the accused, it's heard the powerful exculpation of the accused. So that's what Luke is attempting to do is tell a story that is so entertaining and so delightful and yet 
contains so much truth about Jesus and contains the accusations that are made against him and shows that so people want to read it, first of all, and then it shows powerfully that Jesus has been mistreated and wronged from the time he began his ministry and then ties the disciples in to that same narrative that anybody encountering a Christian after that would be inclined to have a favorable view. This is the whole point. So this is this is where I'm going with this lesson, is that now we can recognize what Luke is trying to do, is that Luke, in his own way, is spreading the message in a more powerful way than Paul ever could, because Paul is one person. He can go from city to city, and he can spend two years there. And as we read, Paul, everyone in Asia can have heard about the the word of Christ because Paul was there. But because Luke wrote what he wrote, now, now we're getting somewhere because as many copies as you care can be made of the book of Acts and they can be spread across the whole world. So as a result of Paul's writings, now this is something we don't read in the scriptures, but we, all we have to do is look at history. First of all, many, many, many Christian converts are lost to history. Uh, there's a book called Lost Christianity that I recommend you check out. It talks about the first five centuries of Christianity and all all these converts that existed. And then the advent of Islam happened in the Middle East. And these cultures that for centuries had been Christian were now forcibly converted away from Christianity. In addition, there are just plenty of Christian nations where uh, there was no record of when they lost their Christianity. But we know that Christianity spread so widely. We do have tons of historical evidence that these early, these first century apostles were so hugely, enormously successful as missionaries that they did convert a large percentage. They did, they, let me put it this way. They completed what James had described as the mission of God, which was to, to bring the remnant of man to desire the Lord, right? They, they did exactly what James described their mission was, to the point where 300 years later, the emperor Constantine would adopt what he perceived or the way that he interpreted the religion of Christianity to be the official religion of the Roman Empire. And in that, so understand, these men were not just good missionaries, They changed the entire face of the world, and the ideas of Christ began to permeate the culture. In addition, what what Luke did was he set the foundation for what we know today as religious liberty. The the Jews had sort of begun that. As we see, the Jews have have a synagogue in several Greek cities, and it's spread throughout this whole area, and they are not participating in the paganism that they're found in. But they do not bring their religion into... Uh, shall we say, nonviolent confrontation with the surrounding culture. It's not, they don't see that as their mission to convert people, right? They just want to live their religion. And what Christians see their mission is as is to, uh, to bring these ideas to face each other, to debate, and to say, if you believe in God, then let me show you what God is doing in the world, and let me show you the ancient Hebrew scriptures that describe him, and let me show you the the accounts of the testimonies that have been born about Jesus of Nazareth and what that says about you and what Jesus taught and how irrefutable it all is and the many people who've seen him after he rose from the dead and then have you refute that or not. And these, 
and the pagans found themselves in a position of having to defend their beliefs, and they were set on their heels. They had no defense for these beliefs because they were indefensible. And as a result, the idea, the very idea of religious liberty had to be created. You see that Paul suffered persecution after persecution because there was no such thing as religious liberty. But Paul was never saying, he was accused of trying to put Jesus in the place of Caesar. But Paul was never saying Jesus is going to rule over the Roman Empire. You remember what Jesus said was, uh, render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's, and render unto God those things that are God's. Now, that's a powerful scripture in promoting religious liberty because Jesus is saying, be loyal to your earthly authorities. And at the same time, Jesus is saying, but they, their authority extends only so far. So on the one hand, there was no problem. Be loyal to your, relig- to your local authorities, to your earthly authorities. Great. On the other hand, uh, there is a problem because that authority cannot extend into spiritual matters that, uh, over which God has the sole authority. And so there became this, not only became this uh, compliance, but there became this conflict. There, there arose a conflict in, in the Christians trying to put limits on how much authority that Caesar actually had. This is the very idea of religious liberty. If you want to hear more about religious liberty, uh, I, there's a wonderful... And, and religious liberty is such an important issue today, and the church leaders are making a big issue out of it, even, or if not especially, in the United States, where, where people would generally perceive that we have a great amount of religious liberty. Um, it's being threatened. There's a wonderful talk, which is on the BYU website, speeches.byu.edu, by Neil A. Maxwell, and it's from October of 1978. It's called Meeting the Challenges of today. It's actually not a talk about religious liberty, but he, he spends a large amount of time in the talk talking about that. It's a talk about uh, foreordination. Now to finish the story, Paul does continue his journey to Jerusalem, but on the way there, there's a one of the followers of the way comes to Paul and says, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, people have been warning him in the spirit for several stops on his journey, but finally while Paul is in Caesarea, which is the seaport nearest to Jerusalem, uh, a man named Agabus comes from Jerusalem and says, Paul, the Spirit is telling me to tell you, and he takes Paul's belt and he binds his hands and feet and says, if you go to Jerusalem, then the owner of this belt will be bound the same way that I am. And Paul has had all of these warnings, and Paul's statement, his reply to all of them is basically, whatever the Lord wants to do with me, I've made my choice. I'm going to continue my course to go to Jerusalem because I have it as a priority to testify before the Jews now that I've testified to the Greek world. So Paul knows, God has given Paul a chance to choose his fate and to avoid this this consequence that will come of going to Jerusalem, but also to choose it if he will, and and he does want to. We'll talk about the rest of chapter 21. What happens is he goes to Jerusalem, and they end up recognizing him, and a mob forms. Again, there's a riot. They're about to kill him, and he's rescued by some Roman soldiers, and he gets a chance to speak to them. And right as he's about to talk, then chapter 21 and our lesson ends. So I'm going to cover most of chapter 21. Uh, with, a, with I'm going to lump it in with the next lesson. This lesson I'm going to keep about the, Paul's missionary journeys to the Greeks. So... Um, oh, we want to return to the, the account of Paul in Athens. Basically, the point is this. The Athenians are described 
as being either spending their time in nothing else but to tell or to hear some new thing. And recently, Elder Cook made a uh, parallel between that and social media and the fact that the Athenians, this is in October 2014 General Conference, and his talk is called Choose Wisely. And he's basically saying, look at all the places that Paul went, everywhere he went. He had huge success and he founded a church and he wrote epistles there. But in Athens, he founded no church. He never really returned that we have any record of. And he also wrote no epistles to the Athenians. So he appears in Athens and he, he goes before them. He bears powerful testimony. A couple of people believe, but basically Paul leaves after a short time because they want to hear some new thing. And Elder Cook saw a very strong parallel between that description of the Athenians and our use today of social media and saying social media is for the point of just to tell or to hear some new thing. It doesn't really carry any depth. Even at its best, it doesn't carry depth. And at its worst, we can become bullies. We can become uh, wicked. We can, we can promulgate things like evil or pornography. And that's at its worst, but at its best, we waste our time and we don't deepen ourselves. We don't actually accomplish any of the purposes of God for our existence. And so, therefore, that Satan is, is one, winning a great victory when we waste our time in that way. That's uh, Choose Wisely by Elder Cook from October 2014. So the final point I'll make is that in this ancient Greek and Roman world that Paul is traveling through, he is coming into constant confrontation with the world of idolatry. And the way that they practiced their religion was to, in the case of the worship of Mars, to study the art of war and to practice warfare and to glorify violence. The way that they worshiped the goddess Venus was to go to the temple uh, of Venus and engage in sexual activity. The way that they practiced the worship of Mammon was to glorify the seeking of material gain and money. The fact that they had a name for their gods and goddesses that who ostensibly condoned their wicked behavior legitimized it. But otherwise, there really is no difference. That So, Today, when we talk about idolatry and we say, well, money can be your God, you know, these other things can be your God. The point I want to make is, look at the lives of the ancient Greeks and Romans and look at our lives today. Don't look at what we say we believe. We don't actually today say, I believe in the God of war. I believe in the goddess of sex. I believe in the God of money. But our worship is the same. If we actually glorify the acts of war, if we glorify the acts of sex, if we glorify the the search for money, then we are worshiping these ancient gods and goddesses in the same way that the ancient Greeks did. And it's every bit as harmful and forbidden as it was for them. So because we don't have an idol and we don't have a name for our goddess and we don't consider it worship is actually sort of irrelevant. What matters is what practices do we engage in? And if we were to go back 2,000 years, would it look like, would what we're doing look like worship of a pagan god to an ancient Roman? And if the answer is yes, then we're being idolatrous, just as surely as the people who were persecuting Paul were being idolatrous. 
So let us escape all of these things that waste our time. Let us escape the act of needing to tell or to hear some new thing constantly. And as, as the Athenians were described, to think of nothing else, right? Let us escape that idea where we think of nothing else but to tell or to hear of some new thing and to, to worship the gods that's in, that rule in the world surrounding us. And instead, let's try to live so that it could be said of us the way it was said of Paul, that because he lived in a place that everyone had heard of Jesus, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.